Father God, we thank you for today. God, we thank you for a chance to open your word. God, to begin a new study in uh, one of your servant Paul's epistles to the church. Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to um, the things that we're going to learn over the course of the next uh, 12 or 13 weeks. Um, God, that you would uh, shine a light on your scriptures, that you would shine a light on our, our hearts. God, that we would... Um, learn the things that you would have to teach us, that we would be convicted um, in the ways that we are living in contradiction to what you have called us to. God, that we would see the beauty and glory of the person of Jesus Christ and his uh, service and grace towards us. God, that we would have a greater love for the church as we are going to talk about um, today. And God, that you would just use this book of Philippians, um, God, to form us and shape us in the image of Jesus Christ. God, help us to grow in it uh, and imbibe and assimilate, God, that we would be fed by your word over the next few uh, weeks. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're back in the epistles. So here's the deal. The epistles are my jam, all right? Uh, man, it is way easier and way, I just gravitate towards teaching through the epistles way more than I do through more narrative passages, which is weird because we've been in Luke forever. And so, um, but there's a different way of teaching both of those. And they 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 draw out in, in different ways. Certainly it's all God's word. Okay, but I just sort of gravitate to teaching and preaching through um, epistolary sections more than maybe narrative sections. Um, part of the distinction there is when we when when you teach a narrative, oftentimes there's a little more digging to know exactly what is being taught there because they're telling stories about things that actually happen to real people, and sometimes. The writer of the the passage um, in one of the gospels, per se, or, or, or let's say, is is um, they'll tell you what they're getting at. Well, Jesus said these things so that the people would know X, Y, Z, or whatever. But they don't always do that, and so you are left sort of trying to piece together um, how this all comes together and what the point and how it fits into the larger structure. In general, when we read the epistles. Um, so we're talking about the letters that were written to different churches and different in- individuals in the New Testament. Man, it's all you're doing is following the line of argument and and discussion that the author is already giving to you, right? It's just like it, almost always there's just this pretty simple process. And that doesn't mean there's not sometimes some mysteries and some confusions and things like that. But most of the time you are watching the author of the, the, the text, that is the human author and the Holy Spirit, um, walk you through a line of thought, take you from point A to point B. Um, and, and it just, it lends itself so easily to being um, expositionally preached. And so I like that. Um, and I enjoy preaching from, from the epistles. Interestingly, in my whole ministry of 18 or 19 years, I've never preached through Philippians. Um, and it's a pretty central book. A lot of people, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a common book, um, to be preached. Um, it's a place that a lot of people gravitate towards in the New Testament. And I've never preached through it. So I'm excited about getting into it with you over these next probably about 13 weeks. We're going to shoot for going up to, uh, Reformation Sunday. So Reformation Sunday, we will, 
we'll shift gears and go in another direction. But between now and then, we're going to be in Philippians, God willing. So um, I want to begin our series on Philippians talking about this idea that's there on the front of your bulletin of the precious church, of the precious church. So when we look around, I mean, the church has fallen on kind of hard days, I think, in a lot of ways over the last um, decade or so. Um, it is plagued by cultural decline, certainly in the West anyway. Um, over the course of COVID and stuff, we had issues with sort of intrusive governmental regulations and things like that in certain parts of our country and the world. Obviously, it is plagued by sin and failure from within in various scandals and abuses. Um, not to mention that there is sort of, again, I feel, and maybe you feel differently, but a general divisiveness and factionalism that is representative of our whole culture, but is also affecting our church. And so as I look out at the spectrum of, of, of gospel preachers and writers and theologians, it doesn't take much work to go, oh, they're in this camp, he's in this camp, this camp doesn't talk to this camp. These people don't like these people. These people are in general agreement, but they won't be at the same conferences together. Like all those kind of things. There's just this sort of general feel of fracture in the church in a lot of ways. But here's the deal. When we come to the, the, the book of Philippians, we see a situation where Paul has a deep love, fellowship, and commitment to the church at Philippi. Okay? You see a pastor, evangelist, church planter, and his great love for this congregation throughout the letter of, to the Philippians. And so I think that we can learn a little, beginning this study, we can learn a little bit about what fosters that kind of love. Like, what would it take for you to feel the same way about this church or God's larger church in general, for you to have the same sort of affection and care and, and, and devotion to God's church. Because the truth is, the church is precious, right? It is valuable and worthy and, and um, glorious, regardless of whether we feel that it is, right? So we might be in a situation where we might go, man, church is drudgery, it's boring, it's just something I do. You may feel that way, but that doesn't mean the church is those things. The church is is glorious. It is God's um, intended uh, primary mode of working in, in the culture. It reveals God's glory. It is the body of Christ. It is the hands and feet of Jesus on earth in the present day. And so the church is precious. And, and Paul, particularly with the church of Philippi, he recognizes that. And so what I want to do is kind of look at a couple little principles here real quick. How would we grow in our sense that the church is precious? What would be the things that we could do and be a part of that we would, that would make us recognize the preciousness of the church? Well, first, this is where we're going to start. The church begins to be more precious to us when we pay attention to the incredible things God is doing in her and through her. All right? So let's begin with kind of a little history as we begin this passage. As we look at Paul's relationship to the church at Philippi. So starting in again, verse one, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, 
always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Okay. If you want to do this, if you've got a Bible that's got a map of Paul's missionary journeys, and you want to flip to that real quick in the back of your Bible, it might help you as I kind of describe the events that lead up to where we're at in the Bible. You can do that if you want to, or you just kind of listen along and 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 imagine a Mediterranean map in your head. All right. So um, the, how we come to the church of Philippi, probably about the year 50 AD, Paul sets out on what we typically call his second missionary journey. And so he travels north from Jerusalem um, up to a city called Antioch that is sort of, you might, it's sort of in the crook of the Mediterranean Sea. It's one of the early hubs of the Christian faith, one of the, the core central cities of the early church. Um, it's the place, as the Bible tells us, is the first place they were called Christians. The followers of Jesus Christ were called Christians. It was no longer just a sect of Judaism. It was no longer um, seen as some some weird whatever. It was declared and separated out as this new faith that is that is um, Christianity. Um, and at Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, who's his co-laborer in, in the mission work, they have a disagreement. Um, John Mark is another character we know from Mark's gospel. He's the one that wrote Mark's gospel. Barnabas says we should take Mark along with us on our missionary journey. And Paul says, I don't want him with us because he flaked on us on a previous situation and I'm not, I don't trust him. And so I don't think he should go with us. Even though they have a tight fellowship, Paul and Barnabas, they end up parting ways. Barnabas and Mark go to the island of Cyprus in the Mediterranean and Paul takes a brother named Silas. And they start going again up through Turkey, revisiting the cities and churches that, that Paul and Barnabas planted on his first missionary journey. All right. They come to a city named Lystra, where they meet a guy named Timothy. Timothy's a pretty important character. He joins their party. And from Lystra, they sort of cut out diagonally across what is modern day Turkey and make their way all the way over to the Aegean Sea. When they get to the top corner of modern-day Turkey, it seems to be that Paul's plan is to sort of turn clockwise backwards and go through northern Turkey into areas that he's not been um, since then or, or hasn't been ever before and make his way back around down to Jerusalem. But on perhaps the night that he was planning to leave and go on that journey, Paul has a vision in the night. And it's what we refer to sort of in Bible stories as the Macedonian call. Paul sees a man standing across the sea in the region called Macedonia. I, I presume that he was dressed or looked in a way that distinguished him as a Macedonian. And that man is calling out saying, come over to us and help us. Come over to us and help us. Um, and Paul hears that call, believes it comes from the Lord. And so instead of heading back across Turkey again, he gets on a boat and sets sail across the Aegean Sea to the northern part of the Aegean Sea, unloads there on a northern coastal city called Philippi. All right. So Philippi is a cool city. It's got a lot of interesting things going on in it. Philippi is a city that is a what was referred to as a Roman colony. So what that meant is it was meant to be a miniature Rome outside of the actual city of Rome. It was supposed to look like Rome, have the same amenities of Rome, have the same culture of Rome. It would be likely that in Philippi, instead of Greek being commonly spoken, Latin would be commonly spoken because they wanted to be as Roman as they could be, even though Philippi sits really in sort of the heart of Greek culture. 
Um, it was a popular place for military personnel to retire. And so if you were a famous general, it might be the case that you would move to a city like Philippi and retire there. Therefore, it had sort of a popular patriotism um, that was going along with it. Philippi sat on the major thoroughfare that led from the east to the west. And so there were all kinds of ways that this city was an important center um, for uh, for lots of things. So we read in, in Acts chapter 16, um, this is the first city that Paul arrives at in really in Europe, okay? Again, if you look at a map, all of the missionary work that has been going going on between Paul and Peter and Barnabas has all been happening in Asia, modern-day Turkey, in Palestine, and things like that. This is the first endeavor, at least from Paul, into Europe proper, Eastern Europe, Mediterranean Europe, but into Europe proper. And so he goes into this city, and he meets a, a number of interesting things happen right off the bat, okay? Cool things. He is, and just think about this scenario. He receives this vision in the night. He has this call to go to this place. And then he goes there, and man, God just does all these really cool things, all right? He enters the city. There is no place of prayer, which we, we think means that probably there were so few Jews in this city that there wasn't a synagogue. Paul typically starts at a synagogue and then works out from there. It's probably the case that there is no synagogue in this city because there is no Jewish presence. So he goes outside the city one day by a river to pray and to, to talk to some people that he's gathered, and he meets a lady there. Her name is Lydia. Lydia is a believer in the one true God. Okay, She is a Gentile woman who believes in the God of the Hebrews, but it's an interesting, we don't know any more than that. How did she find out about this God, right? There's not a Jewish synagogue there. What's what's the scenario? We, we don't have any information. What we do know about her is that she's a seller of purple. Purple's the color of royalty. Probably means that she was a person of means. Um, but she is remembered throughout church history as the first convert in Europe, which is a cool idea, right? The fact that she is the first believer of the continent of Europe. Um, that is, that comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Other cool things happen. They meet a little girl who can tell the future uh, because she's demon-possessed. And they cast the demon out of her. And because of that, she can't make money for her masters anymore. They're not happy about that. And so they basically riot. Um, they have Paul publicly beaten, whipped, and imprisoned. Paul goes to jail, and he's in jail, and then what happens in the middle of the night? There's this earthquake, and all the chains fall loose on all the prisoners. If you remember the story, the jailer wakes up realizing all the prisoners are loose and goes to kill himself because he's going to be blamed for this escape. And Paul says, hey, man, we're all still here. You don't have to kill yourself, okay? Um, and by the end of the night, the jailer is a follower of Jesus Christ. The next morning, the officials come in and they're like, get this guy out of here. And he says, no, I'm not going because I'm a Roman citizen, which is a big deal. They know about that in Philippi, right? It makes sense to them. They're a Roman colony. And he says, you guys whipped me, beat me, and imprisoned me without trial, and I'm a Roman citizen. And so uh, they are very freaked out all of a sudden because there are big consequences to doing that to, to a Roman citizen. And so we all these cool things happen, right? Again, think about it. If you're a person and you have this call from God and you show up and out of nowhere, this woman shows up who's a believer of God and she begins to um, partner with you in this ministry. God's delivering people from demon possession. He's doing these miraculous things. People are being converted, all right? 
uh, all this cool stuff is happening. When Paul is done here, he moves on to Thessalonica, which we have the letter that he writes to the Thessalonians. But I want to point to the fact, and this is the beginning of the idea. You know what endears people to the church is when they see God showing up and working in specific and incredible ways. I feel like that endears Paul to the church of Philippi, and it will endear us to our congregation and other believers in general and the church in general. When you're a pastor, right, you want nothing more than to see God working in the lives of your people. You want to see them growing. You want to see them maturing. You want to see them serving and loving and, and ministering and all these different things, right? Um, and when you don't see that, uh, it, it, it works on you. Right. You feel like maybe maybe you've missed something. Maybe nothing's working right. Maybe uh, it's easy to get discouraged in those moments. Right. To second guess, to start thinking, have I misunderstood this whole thing? Am I, am I doing something wrong? Did I completely misunderstand what what God was leading me and us to? Have I made a mistake have, or have I just fumbled the ball? Right? Is that what's happened? That God has said, go do this thing. And now I've screwed it up somehow. Right. But again, imagine, I, I can sympathize with that, right, as a pastor, but imagine what happens when you feel like God has called you to go across the sea to Macedonia, and then as you get there, God just sort of opens these things up, and miracles happen in your presence on a pretty regular basis. The answer is that endears you to the church. But here's the deal, it doesn't have to be something that's spectacular, because I think the case is, is that any of us, when we look at our own congregation, and we see God working. We say, man, that makes me love my church. It makes me want to be connected to my church because God's doing something among us, right? He's, he's growing people. He's maturing people, right? People are being more faithful in any kind of metric that we can talk about. When everything's going well, when we see God working, there's nothing better than that. And that endears us to the church. And so what does Paul say? This is the church where he saw those things happening. He sees God working in it in verse three. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, right? He doesn't have any doubts. He doesn't have any disappointments. It seems like he thinks, man, I'm just encouraged because I've seen God do so much among you. And then he says, verse four, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. He is, he is encouraged by the church. Okay. And so Paul sees the church of Philippi as precious. He loves it. He sees God working in it, and that's an encouragement to him. Every time he thinks of her, he is thankful to God for her and asks God to bless her. But there's more specific reasons that the church has, has endeared itself to him. And it, it's something we find in the next section, verse 5. The church is endeared to us when we become partners in ministry. Verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from this day until now, the first day until now, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. The key word there is partner, right? So what is Paul pointing to towards? The church of Philippi has worked alongside Paul. They shared in his ministry and the things that were going on concerning the spread of the gospel. And he says from the beginning, they seem to understand exactly what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That every single member, that every single believer in the church is meant to be a disciple maker. It is everybody's job to go out there and do the work of ministry in, in the community. So each one of us does that obviously in different ways. We bring different opportunities. We bring different spiritual gifts. 
to bear on the gospel in our community. But maybe we could zoom in on two specific illustrations of how that is happening in Philippi. Two specific people who join with Paul in the ministry. The first one being the lady we just mentioned, Lydia. So again, we don't know many things conclusively about Lydia. We make a lot of guesses. She's a worshiper of God. She's a Gentile believer. She's a seller of purple, which probably means she's a person of at least some means, right? She's in a high-end um, uh, uh, trade. But notice what it tells us also. It says she uses, um, she invites Paul and Silas and Timothy to come and stay with her. Right, so Paul and Silas and Timothy come into the city and they're like, we don't know anybody. We don't have a place to stay. We don't have a place to do ministry. And Lydia says, if you have found me faithful, then come in and live at my house. Probably the case is, is the church begins to meet at Lydia's house. Okay. She is, she uses her means. She uses her um, position in society. She uses her resources and she says, I want to support you ministers who have come to this this community and I want to support the church through doing that. Not only Lydia, but there's another character who we haven't come across yet, but we will in a few weeks, a guy named Epaphroditus. So Epaphroditus, when Paul planted the church um, in, in Philippi, that was during his second missionary journey. But as he is writing this letter, so when we read this letter, that is at the end of his third missionary journey. Church planted in his second missionary journey. He's writing this letter to them at the end of his third missionary journey. And if you remember the story, Paul eventually will get back to, uh, to Jerusalem. And while he's in Jerusalem, the Pharisees, they decide that they, you know, want to charge him with some things and get him framed for, for blasphemy and all these different things. And so he is brought up on charges, but because he's a Roman citizen again, he says, well, I appeal to Caesar. I have the right to stand trial before Caesar himself as a Roman citizen. I don't have to have these this this Jewish court um, try me. I can go all the way to Caesar. And so as a, as a process, he ends up going all the way and shipwrecks and all kinds of interesting things and adventures happen to him. Finally, he gets to Rome where he sits under house arrest in Rome, awaiting the day that he goes on trial. During that time, the church at Philippi, knowing the hardship that Paul is going through, knowing the deprivation that he is going through, knowing the situation that he is in in terms of ministry there, what do they do? They raise an offering for him. They, the church gets together, raises some funds to help support Paul while he is in prison in, um, in Rome. And they send that money to Paul along with this brother from Philippi named Epaphroditus. And Epaphroditus not only delivers the gift, but he stays there with Paul. And he basically becomes Paul's personal assistant in a lot of ways, not only helping him in his own daily life in terms of, of being in jail or under house arrest or whatever the case may be, but also going and performing the ministry uh, duties that Paul is not able to perform because he's locked up in, in jail. And so Epaphroditus joins in the ministry. 
right? He takes on that responsibility on himself. And Paul says, you know what, guys? Church at Philippi, you guys have partnered with me in the gospel in all kinds of different ways. You have taken personal responsibility for the mission and treated it as if it is your mission too, because it is your mission too. God has called you to the same things he's called me to, and you've taken responsibility for those things. And so that makes me love you, Philippi, even more. Because you have partnered with me in the ministry that God has called us to. And Paul says, I trust that he's going to continue to work in you. I've seen him working in you from the beginning, and I know he's going to work that to completion. Even to the day of judgment, God's going to bring you to where you are supposed to be because you are being faithful in the midst of these things. So again, the principle for us, serving alongside each other, is a great opportunity to build commitment and fellowship among believers, okay? If you want to grow close to those who are um, around you, serve in ministry with them, okay? I didn't ask, I'm I'm sitting here looking at James, I didn't ask James this beforehand, but I would bet that you would probably say the people that you served with at Big Creek, um, including your wife, right? Those people, you formed some of the closest friendships and bonds with those people that you ministered alongside for years, right? Um, that's, that's how it works. When you work alongside people in ministry, you are, you're, you're connected to those people in ways that you could never be connected to them in, in any other aspect of your life. Obviously, there's all kinds of things that we could do. We talk about eldership. We've nominated Kyle and Tim today in, at our business meeting to, to uh, be nominees for eldership in our church. Um, that's an opportunity for them to come alongside and serve our congregation, right? Um, to do the work of the ministry and engage. Um, second harvest, right? There's an opportunity for us to get together as individual followers of Jesus Christ and serve as a group and a congregation in this ministry um, and to work alongside each other. We take those opportunities to partner in ministry, and we know that God's going to use that to grow us in closeness with each other, okay? He's going to make those things endear the church to us, all right? And so we begin to love the church as it should be loved when we see the way God is working in it, when we see the partnership of other believers in in the in the work and the cause of the gospel, and and Thirdly, verse seven, not only when we become partners in those things, but when we become partakers of grace in suffering. Verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. When we read that line, verse seven, it is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers of grace with me. If we read that sentence all by itself, we would probably think we knew what it meant. 
We read that sentence to say, okay, what Paul is talking about is he's saying, I love you guys because you've experienced the same grace in Jesus Christ that I've experienced. We have all been saved by Jesus. We are all part of God's church and God's family. So I love you guys because you have experienced the same grace as me, okay? But the point of the passage is a little more fine-tuned than that, I think, because he immediately defines the context of that grace that he's talking about. And that's in, in verse seven is what, or verse eight. No, it's in the second half of verse seven. Sorry. He says, you are partakers with me of grace, but in what context? Both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So that is to say the Philippians have partaken of the grace of God, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of suffering that Paul has endured. When it would have been convenient to abandon Paul or just to say, you know, Paul's in Rome. He's going through some rough stuff. We're in a completely different, it's not really our problem anymore. I feel for the guy, right? It's too bad that he's going through that stuff. But I, I mean, we've got stuff going on here. we got our own problems, right? There's, there's just not any way that we can just be, we can't help him right now, okay? It would have been easy to do that, to essentially wipe their hands at Paul in some way. And yet what has happened the suffering that Paul is going through, the gospel issues that are taking place in Rome, it has caused the Philippians to say, we want to be a part of that. We want to share in those things with you. We want to suffer alongside of you. There's some way that I can take some of the burden off you, Paul, and put it on me. I want to be a part of that. And so what we find is this, is that Paul loves the church at Philippi because they have been in the trenches with him throughout this process. Ultimately, they have become partakers of grace, but they have also been partakers of his suffering. They've also been partakers of the difficulties that have come along with proclaiming and defending the gospel. And so so that is the exact kind of fellowship that we find that we have with Christ, is it not? Paul is living out, the Philippians are living out, the exact thing that Christ has done for us. In our time of greatest need, Christ has stepped into our suffering. When it was certainly inconvenient, even when we might say it would have been just for Christ to abandon us, to look at us and say, you're not worth the trouble, sinful mankind. And yet Christ comes to our aid. The Philippians have done the same thing for Paul. And in turn, or before, Paul had done the same thing for the Philippians. When Paul had the opportunity to turn right and head towards northern Turkey and go about his plans, instead he heard a man in a vision calling from across the sea saying, please come and help us. We're lost. We don't have the gospel. I know you don't have any plans to come here or maybe even any means to accomplish these things, but please come and help us. And Paul said, I'll go. I will go and help you. And in turn, now the Philippians have come to Paul's aid. Paul's saying, Church of Philippi, this is how you've treated me, and I love you for it. If we treat the church as if we are consumers of the church, then when we are dissatisfied with what we have in the church, we just go down to the next fast food receptacle uh, of spirituality. But if we're more than consumers, if we are partakers of the grace of God, particularly partakers of his grace in suffering, 
in contention for the gospel, if we both have something at stake, if Paul has something at stake and the church of Philippi has something at stake, if we both have skin in the game, if when Paul gets thrown in prison or kicked out of his building or or uh, somebody goes on, you know, Philippian Facebook and, and tells everybody what closed-minded bigots Paul and his associates are, if that hurts the, if that hurts the church of Philippi as much as it hurts Paul, if they bear the weight of it along with Paul in some way, if an attack on one is an attack on the whole and an attack on the whole is an attack on each individual, then that changes the nature of the relationship between people in the church. And it changed the relationship, Paul's, his relationship to Philippi. Paul loves this church because he's been in the trenches with them and they have held the line with him. And look how he expresses it. Man, the language is almost a little bit on the, like it's just a little bit much, to be honest. Verse eight. What does Paul say to the church of Philippi? For God is my witness. How I yearn for you all. With the affection of Jesus Christ. I don't know about y'all, but like when I read that line, there's a piece of me that just goes, all right, just calm down, Paul. All right. That's a little, that's a little bit hyperbole, right? Like as God is my witness. Yeah. That's just, just dial it back a little bit. But I think Paul is being completely sincere. That is an expression of Paul's complete devotion to these, this church because of how they have loved him and how God has worked among them. One last way that we see a connection between Paul and his love for the church, but something that that may teach us as well. Not only do we have a church that we see God working in, a church that we have been partners in ministry, partakers in suffering, but lastly, we see that Paul is praying for this church. Just gonna, if if you haven't noticed, man, I was working on the alliteration this time around, right? I was, we're precious in prayer and Paul and partakers and and partners and all of it, okay? We come to this last one, and the reality is this. Part of the reason why Paul loves this church so much and why the church is loved is because he prays for her. Verse 9, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It is a great passage. In fact, some of you may recognize it. If you join us at our prayer meetings monthly, you will notice that this is one of the six prayers that we periodically pray. This is one of the six prayers that we use as the jumping off point for our prayer time on the first Monday of, of each month. So it's a great passage that we can break down and chew up if we wanted to. Maybe I'll do that in the future. We will, maybe I'll preach a series through those, those six prayers that we find scattered throughout, um, Paul's letters. Um, but in a broad sense, what is Paul asking for in that prayer? He's praying that, that God would bless this church, but he's basically asking that they would be sanctified in truth and love. That's if you, if you just sort of zoom in and take all the pieces and compile them into a few phrases, whatever. Paul is asking that God would sanctify the church of Philippi in truth and love. Truth and love 
being the two fundamental sides of your Christian expression and, and the Christian life. Those are the two principles um, that there's a weird sense in which they are at perfect tension in the church at all times. Right? We live in perfect truth and we live in perfect love. That's the goal. Now we don't, we don't ever hit that, right? Where usually churches are good at one or the other and we fall off on one side or the other. But in our imaginations, we can imagine a, a pinnacle and this side is truth and this side is love. Jesus Christ sits perfectly balanced at the top of that pinnacle. There is no, um, uh, uh, compromising of truth and yet there is no love that is not extended to those in grace. That's what Paul is asking for this church. He says, I want you to grow in these things, to be sanctified in these things, to be set apart for Jesus Christ more and more in love and in truth. Okay. But the larger picture is this. Paul loves this church so much because he prays for this church. And this is what you will find, I think, is the case. If you will pray for your church, you will find your love for your church increasing. If your church is just something that you uh, show up at once a week or twice a week, if it's something that you really don't even think about or consider during most of your um, daily life, and you just go about it, and, and, and it's just another thing that you do, then, then yeah, your devotion and love for your church will probably be pretty minimal. But if your church and its people are something and, and somebody's, that you on a daily basis are praying for, that you're thinking about the concerns that are there, that you're looking through the stuff that's going on in their lives, that you're thinking about the larger issues that are present in, in the fellowship and all the difficulties and all the challenges and all the good and all the hopefulness and all the blessings. If you're dwelling on those things and taking them before the Lord every single day and asking him to intervene and asking you to give, asking him to give wisdom and guidance and, and help and all these different things, you're going to see the church is precious. You will. God will grow that in you. And so there's probably a, a double side to this where not only Paul prays for the church because he loves it, but he also loves the church because he prays for it. And I think the same thing will be true of us. God will kindle that in our hearts. He will grow that love for the church, which is specifically what he asks there in verse 9. That the church would grow in its love, and I think we will grow in love for the church. So in closing, we kind of have this picture, right, of Paul's letter to the Philippians is an intimate letter, right? And he loves this church, okay? And we should love the church. And it and it bears the marks of a close, personal, intimate relationship with this church, okay? And here's the deal. It's cool. When you read the rest of the New Testament, that's not always the case when Paul is writing to these, these different churches. So, for example, the letter to the Galatians, Galatia is a region. Okay, that is a letter that was probably intended to go to lots of different churches with no specific church in mind in a, in, in, a, in a general sense, right? And so it's broad ranging in many ways. Romans is sort of a similar kind of letter. You notice at the beginning of Romans, Paul doesn't know these people. He's not the one that started the church in Rome. He is writing a letter to an established church that somebody else has planted Basically saying, hey guys, I want to help you in ministry and I'm wondering if you could maybe help me in ministry. I'm heading west 
to places unknown, and I could use a stop-off point. And Rome seems like a pretty great place for that. Would you guys help me in my mission as I'm trying to go there? And maybe while I'm there, you know, since I'm Paul, I could probably impart a little bit of wisdom to, to you guys too. But he doesn't know the Roman believers. All right? Corinth. Paul has an intimate relationship with Corinth. But it is an intimacy of dysfunction. Okay? Paul knows all of the garbage that is going on in the church at Corinth. And he is worried about the church at Corinth, and he is wearied by the church at Corinth. Okay? So there's an intimacy there. It's a church that he knows well and knows the names and knows the problems and knows the people, but it is a trying relationship. But you know what? As you would hope and expect, Paul still loves that church. He has a Christ-like love for that church. He bears with their dysfunction, with their sin, with their suffering. And he's trying to speak into it and bring them to a better place, which we begin to see happen in 2 Corinthians. But Philippi, Philippi is a letter to a beloved congregation of friends and co-laborers. It is a letter to dear brothers and sisters in Christ, to fellow partakers and partners in ministry. So what I pray for us is that we would have that same kind of love among each other, that we would do these things that foster love in our own congregation, that we would pay attention to how God is working and praise God for the ways he is working, that we would partner together in ministry, that we'd be partakers of each other's sufferings, and that we'd be people of prayer. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would work these things among us. God, in your goodness and graciousness to us, you have given us the church. Throughout history, people have thought and and commented that we have God as our father and the church as our mother. That it is supposed to be a place of, of provision and of nurture, a place of love and encouragement, a place of challenge, a place that will give us a word of rebuke and correction, a place that will bring proper discipline on us when we stray. God, like so many petulant teenagers, we often decide that we don't need our parents. We don't need a family, that we can do this thing on our own, that we can walk in a world and live unto ourselves. And yet, God, you have called us to the family that is the church and to the accountability, to the love and the service that is the church. You've called us to see the church as something that is good and glorious and beautiful and precious for all of her shortcomings for all the many ways in which she fails and doesn't live up to our expectations. 
God, we are called to love the church and be loved by the church. So we ask that you would help us to do that. God, help us to do these exact things that we've talked about. Help us to come alongside and, and give our lives in, in partnership and in service alongside in the church. God, that we would share in the sufferings and the difficulties and the trials. God, that you would use these things to grow us in, not only in Christ's likeness, but you, that you would use them to grow um, the connection and unity that we have with each other. God, give us a spirit that sees you working and that prays that you would work in greater and greater ways. God, we thank you for the church. We ask that you bless ours. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing the closing song.
Amen. I love that song. Uh, we've been singing it for 500 years. Um, we should sing lots of songs that we've been singing for 500 years. Uh, that's a good thing. Um, wanted to make you aware, if you were here at business meeting tonight, you already know this, but um, two, two uh, announcements. So one, we nominated um, two um, men for eldership in our church. Uh, those two men are Tim Moore and Kyle Anderson. Glad it wasn't like a drum. Put him right. Um, they will be what the process will be is over the next two months between now and, um, uh, our next members meeting. Um, we'll have a time of sort of deliberation discussion. If there's something that you would like to bring to me, if you'd say, Hey, Ash, I have this encouragement. I have this concern. Um, um, you, if you would come and talk to me about those things as we, as you think and pray on, um, uh, their role as elders in our church. Um, if, if you feel confirmed that that is, is who God is leading us to, to, um, call the next business meeting, we will vote and, and, um, move forward in the ordination process. And so, um, so that's the first announcement. Um, the second one is we also, um, received three new members tonight at church during our business meeting. And so those are Melissa Hill, um, and Tim and Bridget Gift um, have all three been received into membership, so they are now officially members of our church. I've got a couple other people who are in in the hopper um, who we just didn't quite get time to uh, get all the boxes checked in terms of, of the steps towards membership, but prayerfully that will happen before next business meeting. And so next business meeting, we'll have some more um, new members. So that will be um, a blessing and an encouragement too. So um, just, uh, I would love it if you would go to these people, um, to Melissa, Tim, and Bridget, to the other Tim and Kyle, and and say, we're praying for you. We're encouraged by this. We're thankful for um, you being here and and serving and, and being a part of this group and stepping up in these different ways. And so um, that's an encouragement, right? Um, that's point one of my sermon. As you see God moving in certain ways, as you see people growing and maturing and connecting, that is something to be thankful for and to look at the church and say, and God's moving. Man, I'm glad he's moving in our church um, and doing these things. All right. Um, hope you have a great week. Um, try not to melt into nothingness um, over the next few days. Um, and uh, God willing, we'll see you next week. Here's this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. See you next week.